0: Hello and welcome, everyone. This is Restorative Justice on the Rise, and I am your host, Molly Rowan Leach. I'm really, truly excited for this conversation today from suppression to expression. And that's going to be, of course, with our very special guest, Will Bledsoe of Restorative Way. He is the president and founder of Restorative Way and i'd love to just share a little bit more about will with you Um, he founded restorative way llc in 2001 to advance the art and science of restorative communication since then restorative way has helped thousands of people in schools families workplaces justice systems and correctional facilities restorative way communication is based on the very latest research in the neuroscience of communication. This research confirms that listening, speaking, and interacting in a restorative way helps conflicted individuals and groups move through difficult, emotionally charged, and often traumatic situations with clarity, purpose, dignity, and empathy, and if I may add, coherence and presence, which is such a root core of restorative practices. So um, in just one moment, I'm going to open up um, into this dialogue with Will and encourage you to check out the Restorative Way website, which is restorativeway.com. And I also want to point your attention to, to the blog that Restorative Way produces And its most recent article, which points to kind of the core of our topic today um, about voice being so critically elemental and foundational uh, to a restorative justice practice and process allowing voice. So I'm sure Will is going to really elaborate on that in our conversation today. If this is your first time here with us on Restorative Justice on the Rise, whether you're live or listening in on iTunes to the podcast, um, we really appreciate your participation. You can check out more of our archives from the founding year 2011 to present at restorativejusticeontherise.org. We also really appreciate if you value this series and want to keep it um, continuing. We're looking for public support to help underwrite our expenses, and we just ask if you would point your attention to the slide. It tells you a little bit more about how to donate if this is of value to you. So thank you for that as well. So without further ado, um, Will, it's just great to have you here today, and I'm really looking forward to diving right in with you. And I wondered if you might be willing to start out about sharing a little bit about how you entered into this work. Welcome, Will.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, Molly. Uh, First thing, thanks for inviting me. Um, First thing I want to do is acknowledge your own vision uh, and efforts and energy, because you well, know, what you're doing is creating a conversation uh, and connecting people um, with your efforts, and that is vital. Um, <clears throat> so when you talk about voice, you're creating um, the opportunity for those voices, for all of our voices to be heard and, and more importantly, to move forward. Um, you know, people who work in restorative justice and restorative practices, oftentimes we feel like nobody understands. <laughs> so, you know, when we, when we connect with like-minded souls, then, uh, it's, it's very in, inspirational. Um, so thank you. Um, how did I get thank into you. restorative justice? I guess, yeah, I, I, I guess we all have a story. Um, you know, I, I was introduced to restorative justice by Beverly Tidal in Longmont. And I was heading into a, uh, a PhD program and I wasn't sure I wanted to pursue it because it was expensive and because I didn't really have anything that I was fascinated by that would sustain my interest. I, I just, I couldn't see the sort of moral purpose for it. And right about the time I uh, entered into the, into the, the PhD program, the Columbine high school shooting happened and when yeah you know, and i always suspected that bullying was somehow involved and so when i heard uh that these two uh shooters uh had been bullied then it activated my own experience with childhood bullying and i just decided that i was going to do something and so i contacted beverly and you know explained my uh my, my purpose, and I knew that she had built bullyproofing programs. And I told her about my background in, in religious studies because I was teaching uh, Native American religious traditions at CU, and she, she introduced me to restorative justice, and she said, you know, the philosophical and practical roots of this restorative approach come from indigenous communities and uh, indigenous peacemaking practices, and then she mentioned Navajo peacemaking, And so I immediately knew that something uh, special was happening. And so when I she invited me to sit in that first circle, it was a check forgery case. And when I witnessed how uh, violation was being addressed uh, by holding the person accountable but with dignity and understanding and empathy, then I realized that this was a type of justice that I had been yearning for my entire life. Um, You know, a justice without judgment, a justice of mercy, um, a different kind of accountability that's focused on taking responsibility and honesty and repair rather than punishment. And so, you know, I think... So for restorative way. So anyway, so I, I decided at that moment that I was going to make this my life. And all of a sudden, my experience as a kid and going up during the Vietnam War and uh, my education to that point made sense. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting because I think for, for all of us who get involved in this, when we first encounter... The restorative approach, then there's a a very bright light that switches on inside of us and it's far reaching. And so we begin to see human violation in a much different way, a a restorative way. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and so situations and injustices and social conditions that used to really frustrate us and depress us and shut us down. And leave us feeling, feeling kind of hopeless, you know, all of a sudden, uh, have restorative potential. And so we start to see a way through and a way to look back and to reconcile history uh, in order to move forward. And it speaks to our heart, you know, but also our, our sense of humanity and our convictions and our inspiration and, and quest for resolution and and deeper connection with our fellow man, Um so we see a way that people can come together and discuss difficult and, you know, painful traumatic events in a manner that's open, honest, and, and, and dignified and purposeful. So you want me to keep going? <laughs> I w-
0: well, I wanted uh, – thank you. I wanted to just make sure people know that at any point during today's conversation, please feel free to either raise your hand in the, the telecast room by pressing start 2 on your keypad, we'll know that you have a question or a comment and we'll try and acknowledge those as we go through the hour today. As well as if you have a webcast question, make sure you press the Q&A tab. It's at the obvious it's fairly obvious it's on the right-hand side of your computer screen. Um, there's a box there where you can type a question that we will receive in our um, dashboard here. So please just know that we welcome those throughout today's uh, conversation. And um, so, Will, if, if we could just go back for a moment. You, you shared about Dr. Beverly Tidal. And just for those of you that may not be aware of who Dr. Tidal was Um, She passed away a few years ago, um, and she was somebody very significant in bringing restorative justice to this area. And, Will, I wondered if you might be able to speak a few words about your experiences with her as far as what you saw her create here, um, especially in Colorado. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And just to honor her. um,
1: Yeah. You know, Beverly – um Beverly and I got pretty close and you know she is um she was a ferocious social justice advocate um she was somebody who was unwilling to let uh people fall by the wayside get caught up in the system uh, uh kids you know kids that were at risk um and she was really one of the pioneers of restorative justice and restorative school discipline in Colorado um and so you know over the years of being in relationship with her it was her conviction about restorative justice and the restorative approach it came from such a deep deep reservoir uh of you know a young woman growing up in the 60s in the south um you know, an advocate and fighter for civil rights, uh, someone who had experienced, you know, tragedy in her own family. And she just was, um, I would describe her as a ferocious but kind spirit um, who had such an immense heart and deep empathy. And it was infectious. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, mm-hmm. anybody who got to know her, you know, anybody who got to know her, it's like you you became immediately convinced that this is the reason why we're here, to help each other.
2: Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm. you
1: know, she's the one, she's the one. That, and she helped me build the restorative justice program at CU. Um, you know, we'd have long, deep conversations about ritual and healing. And she was,
2: you know, I hesitate
1: to call her sort of a grandmother energy, because she was just such a youthful spirit, she had a wicked sense of humor. Um, but she, you know, she was she was a she was an, she was an intellect too. You know, uh, she could get down on the street and fight with the you know with the roughest of us, and yet console us when we were hurt.
0: <laughs> and I believe she was an instrumental part of seeding the national anti-bullying movement. Is that that oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, she was one of the pioneers there too. And, you know, this was even before Columbine. And, um, you know, it's when we were still in that transition period from research into, um, you know, creating programs and solutions. And she was at the forefront of that. And so when she, you know, uh, embraced restorative justice, she immediately saw the connection. Um, of course, she and I had a lot of disagreements around how you use restorative justice and, and to address bullying. And but um, you know, the the right uh, the right, right thinking was
0: there. hmm Well, thank you for giving a little bit more of your own vision and experiences with with Beverly. Um, I just think it's so important to remember her and honor her, and also. Um, her work lives on at resolutionariesinc.com. So if people are interested in finding out more about her life and her work through her daughter, um, Summer, is carrying on that, that work, I believe. So, um, But, Will, coming back to, to our flow in dialogue today with everyone, I'd, I'd love to hear more about restorative way, So I'm wondering if if you might be willing to share its founding and um, elaborate also on this concept of restorative communication, which, you know, you've trademarked. um, It's poignant. It's significant. And I also want to throw out, too, that your tagline is really important for everyone to hear. When empathy meets accountability, hearts and minds align. So take it from there. yeah. Thank well, you.
1: thank you. Yeah, re- you know, restorative way, I, to go back to what I was saying earlier, you know, when, when we put on the restorative lens, to use Howard Zare's term, um, you know, we, we start to see restorative potential in a multitude of contexts and we have a sort of a micro perspective where we look at individual conflicts and interactions and interpersonal violations and circumstances and interpersonal relationships. Uh, families, schools, workplaces, even churches. And, and so we look at the interpersonal relationships, uh, that make up a social fabric, but we also begin to take on a macro perspective, uh, politics, geopolitical injustices, you know, social structures, institutions and and history and the environment and uh, public policy. And so we, we have both of those perspectives. Um, and so, you know, part of, uh, what being a restorative um, practitioner is about is starting to look at all of those places where restorative communication uh, and interaction uh, can really help. And so, you know, I, I started restorative way to try to find those ways so that regardless of what the situation is, um, Let's take a look at what restoration means and how restoration can happen in those sites. Um, and so, you know, so I, because I was in communication, um, literally by, by chance when I was thinking about restorative way, uh, was when I started to work in earnest on the dissertation. And I had a wonderful man as the chair of my committee. His name is Dr. Lawrence Fry. And he introduced me to communication activism. Research, And it's a type of research where the researcher goes into a a site, uh, studies a problem, works with the people involved, uh, identifies the conflicted thinking and and breakdown in communication, uh, and then formulates a, a solution and then enacts that solution. And so what makes it unique, communication activism research unique, is that the ultimate purpose of the research is to return it to the community rather than take that research and just publish it in like a peer-reviewed journal so as a researcher you're standing in the fire with the people who are suffering um, and right about that time is when i started the building the restorative justice program at cu and so that's what i did i you know went around and knocked on doors and said hey what's what's happening here and you know what do you need to have happen and you know, how are, how is the justice system failing to address this issue? And how is the university failing to address this issue? And, you know, what are the relationships are like? And so, um, that's what, that, that period is what really convinced me that, um, that you can use the restorative approach as a type of, uh, research, uh, for, for problems. And if you call it a way, then, you know, you're you're not limited to just the sort of five-step restorative justice um, process. It opens up a whole world of, of dialogue, um, and so you know, out of that experience, I needed to take a break from human suffering, and so I went into environmental justice, and I started working with a guy in um, um, Michigan who was restoring freshwater lakes. And I wanted to see what restorative justice had to say about environmental justice. And I learned a lot from him because he stepped out of his house one day in his lake house, and the lake was overgrown with weeds and algae, and, uh, and it was the result of um, nutrients coming in from the watershed, you know, people's fertilizing their lawns and the farms. And so he developed a, a technology that would restore the lake's inherent capacity to continuously restore itself on a microbiological level. And it was such an, an elegantly restorative solution um, that it really taught me a lot about people and communities. And so, you know, now the work that I do with schools and uh, around trauma-responsive communication is the goal is to go into a family or an organization, a school or business, and and implement to restore that organism's capacity to continuously restore itself. So, for example, when I go into a school, it's not just about training restorative practices. It's about building a restorative culture. And when you approach it that way, then you have the ability to have every member that's in that organization interact with each other on a daily basis that will reflect restorative values, restorative mm-hmm. principles. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the challenges Uh, of any organization or school, go ahead.
0: No, I just, um, it's a good segue to a question that was submitted via the webcast pane from Melissa, if I may. Um, Thank you, Melissa, for, for this question. I think it fits into where we're at in this conversation really well. She asks, what are your suggestions for a community to learn about and begin to integrate restorative communication and how do you see restorative communication being transformational for a community? And of course, you were talking about um, sustaining it in shifting the climate um, as a whole. I believe. Right. Thank you. Yeah, that's. An, Thank I, you for your question,
1: yeah. Melissa. Thanks, Melissa. That's that is an excellent question. You know, one of the one of the valuable um, one of the gifts of looking at uh, restoration as a, as communication. Is that you begin to see how people can develop ways of speaking with each other, ways of listening, language, questions, uh, decision making, um, in in a way that is restorative. And so, so let me give you an, let me give you an example. Um, it's a beautiful example, um, and it's at a, a Waldorf school that I've been working with for two years. And you know, typically what happens is that I get called into a a site, a school or a business, uh, it's because there's a crisis and they want me to facilitate, you know, a mediation or a resolution. But what inevitably happens is that when I come into that site, I see that the conflict is a result of organizational communication dynamics that have failed to address conflict over time. And so a climate of conflict becomes entrenched and it's the same thing in communities. And so it's it's the accumulation over time of destructive interaction uh, and ways of speaking with each other and about each other uh, that needs to change. And so what happens in that climate is that eventually there's a complete disconfirmation of people and, and their voices and relationships, and it takes on a life of its own. So that anybody, it becomes the climate. So anyone who then comes into that social environment becomes enculturated into those patterns. And so I've, so at Waldorf, what we did was, and so I always ask an organization or a school, you know, show me your policy uh, in the way that you uh, manage behavior or, or address behavior that we don't like, you know, what story does that policy tell? Is it an or else document or is it a teaching document that inspires people? And so when you have a school or a community or organization that's pursuing restorative practices, but its policy is laden with, you know, coercive and punitive language, then that Punitive policy is always going to be looming in the background. It says, sure, we'll do restorative justice, but only to a point. And so when I got called by this Waldorf school in Carbondale, you know, it was to address a a specific problem with with bullying. But what we did over the course of two years was to build a whole school restorative um, behavioral response system. And that meant, Melissa, to answer your question, that meant um, first of all training everybody in restorative communication, restorative interaction. You know, how do you how do you embrace misconduct mis- what we call misconduct? How do you look for the underlying reasons and issues for why this communication is happening or this misconduct is happening? So it's training, and and when everybody learns to speak, and interact restoratively, there's an immediate shift in the climate, uh, the communication climate and the culture of, of, the, of the site. Um, but the second thing that you have to do are, is you have to have a policy that supports those principles, uh, positive expectations, positive behavioral expectations. You know, what do we as a community aspire to? And how do our practices, when things get, you know, out of alignment, how do our practices remind people of their um, their connection to the school or the community, to their um, sense of re- responsibility for
0: others and themselves?
1: Um, how does Will? discipline become about teaching? Uh huh.
0: On that note, and excuse me for interjecting, mm-hmm. but that it no, feels fine. like such an important point here. Um, a policy. If if we don't have one in place, what are you observing, um, even if there's like this implicit or unspoken understanding that, hey, we're building a restorative climate here, um, we assume that everybody is on the same page about what that means, but if you don't have a policy in place, what is the tendency that you're observing that happens when the inevitable eventually occurs, meaning conflict?
1: Yeah, if, if you don't have a, a policy that clearly articulates uh, your positive aspirations and a policy that articulates very clear uh, processes, ways of responding to misconduct, if you don't have that policy in place, then every time a conflict happens, you, you don't know how to respond, and the community doesn't know how to respond. So when you put a policy in place that that sets these positive expectations forth, these aspirations, and in that policy you lay out your philosophy, and this is what's so beautiful about Waldorf, is that the the, the pedagogy and, and the philosophy of education that Waldorf schools um, uh, facilitate and, and, and pursue is in alignment with uh, restorative responses to. Uh, behavior because it's all focused on development and helping individuals and, and the, the community, uh, to learn how to move through conflict. So your policy is really your orientation document. And the beauty of a policy in a school is that families can take it home and they can use it as a teaching document. Everybody knows how any misconduct is going to be responded to with grace, grace accountability exploration and and repair you know um it's um it's sort of a moral compass you know that's that's focused on community well-being community health so your policy is really sort of the axle of the wheel it's the center of the circle uh and then all of the training your your practices you know the school practices the classroom practices the teaching circles the respect agreements the whole range of restorative practices emerge out of that policy and the beauty of that is that you can you can really turn this is what we found at the Waldorf here in Carbondale is you can really make a positive shift uh, in your um, behavioral um, culture very quickly because it activates I mean people people embrace it parents embrace it Um, You know, the second thing, too, though, is that if you have a policy in place, then it's not just for the students. So in other words, you know, part of the policy that we've built here is we expect all of our community members to embrace these these positive uh, values, these positive expectations, including parents. So that when you have teacher-teacher conflict, you have to respond to that restoratively. When you have parent-teacher conflict, You use the same restorative process, the same dialogue process. Um, So it really is, it becomes less about school discipline and more about community engagement when things happen. It's a way of being in relationship with each other when conflict or misconduct happens that that we all uh, can be involved in. So if you think in terms of circles, right, Mm -hmm. rippling circles out. um, You know, if you have an organization that professes restorative values, but, you know, you've got gossip and you have um, unresolved trauma that erupts into destructive interaction, Um, you know, then you have to be comprehensive and and approach all of those situations restoratively to remind people of their their connection.
0: Mm. Thank you. And Melissa was wondering if you would elaborate a bit more about what you mean um, about re- responding with grace.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think fundamentally, um, and this is what I, I tell people in training: you have to separate behavior from the individual. So the individual, by just by virtue of them being alive, right? There's an inherent value in the individual. Behavior is just an expression; it's, it's a symptom. Um, and so when when you approach conflict. Um, or an injustice with grace, it means, and this is going to sound kind of controversial, but for me anyway, you respond in a way to where you recognize that um, the, the behavior is an expression of uh, unknowing. Uh, it's an expression of an unmet need. Uh, it's an expression of, you know, something that hasn't been resolved either in the individual or the organization. And so when you move into an encounter, a restorative encounter with grace, it means that you are fundamentally recognizing and honoring uh, the, their inherent value as a human being. Same thing with the environment. But you recognize almost a sanctity that exists as life in that person and if you can recognize that and approach any incident from that perspective, then I've found, and I've done probably over a thousand of these things. I have found that that's that's really half of the half of the journey, because you remind people that that they are important, that they're valuable, and when you do that, then it inspire it. it uh, how can I put this? It it opens the door inside of them to then be honest and frank when they know that you're not out to get them, but you're there to help them. Then a lot of times that's what people are needing most of all to be able to sit across from somebody and say, first of all, you matter. <laughs> now now let's figure out what's going mm-hmm. on together.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta,
1: you gotta be willing to stand in the fire of, of, you know, of, of people's pain and hold it with them.
0: And and in many ways, that points back to the excellent blog piece that you wrote most recently on your blog, which I highly recommend to everyone who's with us today. Check out restorativeway.com and go to the blog. Um, check out the, the most recent piece that um, Will has written, which is on this topic from suppression to expression and um, will you talk so eloquently about the importance of voice in that piece Um, and I think that's what you were just sharing in some way or another that stepping in with grace is also holding spaciousness for everyone's voice in that particular matter whatever it may be right is that
1: yes yeah, you know it's funny, and thank you first of all for acknowledging the the blog article. I mean, it's it's um, you know it's it, it, it's clearly recognizable in in Western civilization and, and hierarchies. And um, you know, after I wrote that piece, I was reflecting on uh, the the Kavanaugh hearing, and You know, we talk about asking, in the article I talk about how the restorative approach invites people's voices. One of the things that really bothered me about that whole um, confirmation process is that, you know, the outcome was determined before we heard from people. And so here Dr. Ford is asked to come and share her story, and she courageously does so. But at the end of the day, no action was taken, official action was taken in response to her voice. And so in that moment, what happened was that millions of us, millions of women, millions of men like myself who love women, sons, fathers, brothers, um, were had to experience a kind of suppression of our voice. And it was a type of re you know, re-injusticing, and you know, it 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 just at the end of the day, it there wasn't resolution. You know, there wasn't even the proper follow-through on investigation. Um, and it, it's that really disturbs me. Um, so, you know, the suppression of voice, it's not only about listening to that voice. It's not only about inviting that voice in. But it's taking it seriously enough to be able to enact a change, to follow it through, uh, and to, to include it as necessary, uh, to any decision that has to do with, with justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. system is, is built so it's like, yeah, we'll listen to you, but it won't matter because, you know, what would happen if, if it did mm-hmm. matter? Then our legitimacy mm-hmm. would be, In question, and and that's why I wrote that that article, you know. um, Uh, And
0: you know what you write about the neuroscience behind it or the the genetics, um, I think also is very powerful. And if I may, I'd like to share a clip from the blog, um, and point it maybe back to the topic of policy. Because
2: uh-huh. policy
0: is something that also helps us not to slip into our natural tendency for um, punishment because we're wired in a certain way culturally. And please, you know, guide me if I'm, I'm off here on this. But, but I, it appears that unless we have a policy in place that represents our values for restoration and for, for voice, we do have a human tendency to slip um, back to you know what we know, which is unfortunately a system that doesn't work um, for the most part with you know punishment. So um, yeah. is this a good point where I share the a little bit from that article oh, yeah. then? Um yeah. Okay. A- absolutely. Uh, you just, know, I I think, I think it's extremely powerful. <laughs> okay.
2: Well, no, thank you. So
0: from thank the blog yeah. from. From the blog, again, the title of this latest blog piece is called Restoration of Voice from Suppression to Expression, and Will writes, um, I'm going to just lift this piece out here that we're talking about, because human beings are genetically programmed for survival, our survival instinct is activated when we feel threatened. Our primal brain reacts with a fight, flight, freeze response. These three reactions are expressed in how we communicate about what happened. When we know our account will be used against us, we protect ourselves. If we fight, we become defensive. I had every right, quote unquote. If we flee, we evade, maybe by deceit or deflection, quote unquote, I didn't do it or he made me do it. If we freeze, we withdraw and become silent. That's the neurological explanation. Culture plays an equal part. And you you go on to talk about how we may think this only applies in a court of law, but in truth it happens in families, schools, and workplaces. We've been culturally conditioned. It's an old Western paradigm. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I just just love how succinctly you sum it up.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It, it sounds succinct. Well, I think we have to insane. be
0: reminded of the obvious. You know, I, I really do. I, I, I honestly believe that we have to be reminded together as best we can of the obvious as we work towards um, better implementation, um, you know, from the individual practicing to as we step into um, spheres professionally where we're trying mm-hmm. to really be careful about how we implement and practice so
1: yeah and and one of the one of the one of the outgrowths of that is that you know this um this survival mentality then finds its expression uh in culture and in policy uh through a safety ethic through an ethic of safety and protection and all of that is premised on fear and so when you for example when you when you look at what uh, our our president did in the days and you know I I don't want to become a political radical because I'm not but when you look at what he was saying prior to this election uh he was uh capitalizing on on people's survival instinct he was activating fear he was feeding into fear And that resulted in a politics of protection and a politics of, uh, safety. And it's on a certain level, it's, it's re-traumatizing and it creates, you know, opposition and it doesn't acknowledge the humanity in the other person. The minute that we label somebody other, we are, uh, we are negating our responsibility to know about them. And if we start to engage with them and know about their struggle, like these people that are moving up, you know, moving away from the horror that's happening in Central America, if we fail to ask them, what happened to you? Then, then not only do um, we lose an opportunity to help them, but we, we kill a part of ourselves and we remain stuck in our own fear based mentality and then you have political leaders come along and really exploit that and it's 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 such a tragedy but (laughs) those of us who work in restoration (laughs) patient we are patient we are biting and we are ferocious peace activists and you know like gandhi we're willing to stand in the face of fire and even when we're being hit we look we acknowledge the humanity of the other person and personally i think that's mm-hmm. why we're here i think that's i think that's why we exist is, is mm-hmm. to connect and and i and that wisdom comes from our native american and, and indigenous brothers and sisters who we owe a tremendous gratitude for maintaining their traditions in the face of being um having so much injustice put on them. You know, I always find it ironic that restorative justice sort of came about when criminologists started asking Native communities, well, how do you do justice? So here they are being uh, suffering at the hands of our own justice approach, and now we're asking them to teach us about justice. And we owe a huge um, debt of gratitude, you know, and more importantly, we need to change the way we treat them. This. This uh, inability or this attempt to prevent Native Americans from voting is deplorable.
0: It sure is.
1: We need we need so that I, voice.
0: We absolutely do. We absolutely do. And and perhaps this is the point, Will, um, where if you'd be willing to share your powerful story about. Um, your own path of of restu- uh, restoration around your ancestry.
2: Hmm. <clears throat>
1: yes, thank you. So I, I grew up in New Mexico, and my mother's side of my family came over from Spain, and the first ancestor was with Oñate's colonizing army in 1598. And he was a soldier in Oñate's army, and he participated in... The massacre of 800 men, women, and children um, at, at Acoma Pueblo in 1599. Um, in 1833, uh, my great 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 grandfather was Francisco Saracino, and he was a, a governor in in Mexico. And he wrote a grant for I think it was 16,000 acres uh, to a group of 61 Spanish families. And one of my other ancestors. Was one of those grantees. Uh, that grant was uh, I, was taken from the Acoma people. That was their ancestral homeland. And so, um, you know, through the generations, um, this land, some of the land, was handed down to me, and my brother and my sister. And um, you know, we're they're older than I am, and we were trying to figure out what to do with this. Um, and so we. We decided to give it back to the Akuma people, and so I you know, contacted the, the Akuma Tribal Council and say, "You know, look, we've got this this land, and we believe it was unjustly taken. Um, we want to return it to you um, uh, because um, we want to we want to write a different chapter in our own family history and acknowledge the harm that our ancestors caused." And so, you know, please uh, take this, take this back. So we did that. And, you know, growing up in New Mexico, uh, I, I was sort of um, in that area. You know, I never, um, I never really felt at home. You know, I, I left when I was 12 years old, went away to school. And, and um, but when, when the, when the Yakima Tribal Council w- received the deeds, um, I brought my daughter down with me and what they said and how they blessed us and how they honored us with this simple act um, was life-changing for me and, and my daughter. It was profoundly moving and, you know, I was in tears. And after it was over, I walked outside and my daughter said, "What? how come the tears are so deep? <laughs> I said, I turned to her and I said, because for the first time in my life, I feel like i come home in New Mexico. And um, so, you know, when you talk about voice, there were, there was a convergence of voices. Um, you know, I, I was connected to my ancestors and yet there was a voice in them. I believe um, that, that needed to express um, an apology and amends. Um, and so it was just, it was a, a beautiful experience and, you know, it's, it's, I'm grateful to, to the ACMA people for allowing us to give it back to them. I learned a lot about love that day.
0: Hmm. Such a powerful story.
2: Hmm.
0: I know That's that really that
1: changed
0: was. changed my life. Yeah. I'll just let that, you
1: know, and it set an example for my daughter too. Hers and hers my relationship, we've always been close. But in that moment, in that experience, we um, reached into a deeper level of connection that was ancient and beyond father-daughter. I think she understood in that moment that uh she discovered her own sort of river and I always told her I said look honey your your river runs deep and you got flowers growing on your banks and and on the drive back from uh from Acoma, she said i i get it and i said yeah th- this is why we're here it's to connect on that level with people
0: mm Thank you so much for being willing to share that experience. And um, I just uh, I wonder if, if that might be woven back to the place of um, the ground level, you know, your everyday work, what you just shared. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you're clearly informed by that experience in all that you do. And um, I know that there's a few areas that we haven't gotten to yet within our time together today. Um, So just want to pause, though. Alice is um, submitting a web question right now, and if I could just bring that in to to do um, a little bit of discussion around her question. And then Uh we could go into just looking at some of the areas that, our ground level, like Tier 1 practices, um, how voice and healing and knowing what it is that needs to be done um, informs your work specifically and, and with your partner, Carrie, right, uh, of restorative work. Yes. So, 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 so anyway, let me just back to make a to comment. Alice, though. So.
1: Oh, oh, go oh yeah. ahead. I just See. wanted to make one, one, one quick comic and, and, you know, to draw all this back into sort of the pragmatics. Um, when, when Carrie and I do uh, a training in restorative practices, we discovered that that experience that we all just had when I told that story, that when we go in to do trainings, we're not just delivering exercises and knowledge. We want people to have that experience as they're taking in this information. So a training should be as much an experience of restoration as it is about learning how to do restoration. And, and that's one of the reasons why Carrie and I are partners, because she is, you know, she, she does that, she accomplishes that in her training, uh, and, and so do I. So the trainings are as much of an experience of restoration, personal restoration, uh, as it is, okay, now we're going to show you how to do this. So I just wanted to add that.
0: I love that, and i I feel like um, for any of the neuroscience and um, science geeks like myself that are with us today, um, we can, you know we can point it back to um, the research and science that proves that we go into coherence. When we identify, um, our shared, shared and common humanity by storytelling. And in this case, it's a very real story that you lived and experienced. And, um, so I, I don't know about the rest of everyone, but I sure felt it on a coherent level. Um, and I love that you pointed out that, that that's part of what you do when you do your trainings. Uh, so yeah, Alan, all, thank it's you. It's all about
1: mirror neurons. <laughs>
2: That's it's
0: right. All about
1: mirror what fires
0: together, wires together. Right. That's right. So, so I wanted to honor Alice's question though. Um, she asks what um, if if you are familiar with research findings on tend and befriend as additional ways that we respond to threats to survival. So thanks, Alice, for that.
1: Um, what was that term again? pen and defend.
0: Yeah. Tend and befriend. I guess uh, I have never heard of it personally. Uh, research findings on tend and befriend, and if there's anybody on the live call, um, press star two on your keypad if you want to chime in about tend and befriend. But um, I don't have any. I don't have any information on that.
1: Yeah, I I don't. I've never heard that term either. But my sort of intuition is that it recognizes. How uh, an authentic connection with each other or in a social community uh, can um, can heal um, unresolved relational trauma um, that when we involve or so when we become engaged in, in a community and that that connection with our community the people we work with the teachers the students whatever that when we are connecting consistently on that level of Uh, acknowledgement, then it has the ability to um, rewire brain processes. You know, we start to move from our survival brain up into our prefrontal cortex and the nervous system regulation. And um, so my gut tells me that what we're really talking about there is the ability of transformative experience in social environments.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that sounds pretty spot on in not knowing much about the research or anything, but I I always appreciate people um, submitting what's going on in our world that relates to these topics, so thank you, Alice, and thank you for what you do in your part of the United States. We have people here with us today from all over uh, the country, United States in particular, but... We also often enjoy the presence of people from North America, South America, and certainly the podcast reaches people from all over the world. So thank you so much because everyone that participates in this is an integral part of why we do this. So, so Will, if, if we could close today, we have about six more minutes until the top of the hour. It might be really great to go really specific, nitty gritty, ground level one more time if you're willing. We talked a lot today about whole schools, um, you know, shifting climates in our communities. So, you know, communities can be school communities. They can be organizations. They they can be environments. You name it. Wherever there are professionals relating to one another, human beings relating to one another. That's a place where we can can do this work. Is that? I mean, I'm assuming that would be true. Um, but would you please go to the nitty gritty about what it means on a regular sustaining basis to to do restorative practices? What does that mean besides the com, the change in communication? Um, maybe learning about NVC yeah. and how we frame things.
1: Yeah, I, I think probably the the takeaway um, when, when you're trying to create a whole school or a whole organizational restorative culture. Uh, People from communication, people like me who look at communication, believe that communication is a consequence of the way we interact with each other. So, for example, if I'm going into a school or I'm going into a workplace, there's a few Ps to follow. Number one is policy, right? So your policy lays out your principles, it lays out your practices it lays out your processes that you're going to how you're going to respond to any type of conflict or or you know misconduct so you've got policy you've got the principles that support that policy then those principles go into designing your your practices these are the actual encounters whether it's a restorative dialogue in the moment or interaction in the moment um, whether it is uh, an informal type conference that you have to have to resolve an immediate issue, or whether it's a more formal restorative uh, encounter, you know this is where the conventional restorative justice conference or school discipline conference happens. Um, so you've got you've got policy principles, practices, you know the procedures. How do you process a conflict? How do you, um, you know, what's the sort of structural programmatic? Part of uh, having a, a, a behavioral response system that's based on restorative principles. Uh, and then for schools, the last part is pedagogy. So in other words, how do you teach, how do you use the restorative process to talk about uh, something like, um, you know, what's going on right now uh, with immigration? You know, how do you take the restorative process as a teacher and use the process in the classroom to guide the discussion about um, you know, these uh, these folks who are uh, running away from, uh, you know, violence? Um, how do you use that process? So policy practices, principles, you know, procedures, and for school pedagogy. And when you come into a school or come into an organization with that whole systems approach, then pretty soon everybody starts thinking and communicating and acting. In restorative ways, um, and that's why the whole the systems approach and the whole school approach uh, is so valuable. Um, does that does that sort of help? And all of that happens through training and implementation, which is what what Carrie and I do. Uh, that's that that's very helpful. Kind of Thank you. Your question? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And and I think that um, maybe would uh, like a community building circle. In a school,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, is that something that you share when you co- go in and do your trainings? Um, and uh, do you share it with teachers and administrators for, for their processes? Or is it mm-hmm. mainly related to classrooms?
1: No, no. it's It's for the whole community. And one of the things that Great. we're finding at, at Waldorf is that, you know, invite the parents in to restorative training. Invite them in to be a part of the process. Uh, Your policy establishes that conflict between faculty members and staff goes through the same process that you would with a student. Um, You know, what we're finding at the Waldorf here is that parents are actually asking the school if they can do a restorative process uh, to resolve an issue that's happening between them and their own kids. And that's what you want. You want that community-wide embracing of, Restorative processes to you know to go to handle anything. Um, it, it, it's fundamentally a way of being in relationship with each other, and that extends to anybody who's involved in any community. You know, parents, teachers, students, um, and, and in the workplace too. You know, if um, somebody right now is asking me, how do he's a head of ski patrol at a ski area? How do I do restorative practices? months you know it's my uh you know type a um ski patrollers i said well let me teach you about restorative dialogue in the moment
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know let me teach you how, how to regulate their nervous system <laughs> so. mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: well it's just it's been great um and that's an understatement really i mean Incredibly moving conversation here with you today, Will, and I'm wondering if you have anything you'd like to close with, any closing comments before we wrap up for the hour.
1: Yeah. um, Two quotes have sort of popped up this morning. The first is, you know, with this particular moment in time that we find ourselves in with so much instability and, and fear and opposition that you know, it's like I told my daughter, look, fear knocked at the door, and when faith answered, no one was there. So that's the first quip. The second quip is that evil prevails when good men and women fail to do uh, something. And so all of us involved in this restorative movement um, uh, have, I think, hold the key to uh, restoring balance in, in our world—it's uh, part of our DNA. It's just that we have to be reminded of it. So, but I just want to say thank you for everybody who participated, and and thank you, Molly, and I'm um, a huge fan of your work, and I, I really feel blessed to be able to, you know, to share this time with you.
0: Well, I just want to appreciate you, and of course, Carrie as well from Restorative Way. Uh, for all you do, and I know that while you're based in um, the Denver and Boulder area, you also offer consults beyond that. Is that true? I just want to throw that in there. For anyone who wants to reach out to you, um, we're looking at the slide right now that shows your contact information, so um, w- do you have a particular region that you you serve?
1: Uh, you know, Carrie and I have a motto that uh, have peace, we'll travel. <laughs> so.
2: We, OK, you know we've, we're, <laughs> That's
1: we're, we're all over the United States, you know Connecticut, Florida, California, Hawaii. Um, so we'll you know it's um, wherever there's need and requests, we will we'll go and, and do as much as we can to help people.
0: Well, thank you so much again. It's been such a mm-hmm. pleasure to have you with us today. That's William Bledsoe, everyone, um, that we've been talking with from Restorative Way. Um, Please check out restorativeway.com. Make sure you check out the blog there and that latest article that I'm raving about. Um, Really, you won't be sorry. And just um, stay in touch with us. Uh, Go to restorativejusticeontherise.org for all of our archives. And like I said, at the top of the hour, please, if you find this series of value, consider making a donation of any amount amount towards helping us to continue. Please join us next week as we welcome the Connection Series pre-launch, which is a great opportunity for those of you who feel like you're missing a chance to regularly sustain a mentorship connection with leaders in the field. We're offering a Connection Series, which gives you a menu of wonderful people um, that will be guiding and connecting with you directly on monthly calls um, between January and December of 2019. So it's quite an undertaking. It's something that we're trying to offer for a very reasonable rate. Um, I believe $149 for the entire year is is one of the options, and there's also monthly payments that you can make. Um, to tap into this incredible series. That said, this coming Monday we're hosting one of the guides, Kay Pranis, and she'll be talking about individual and collective accountability in a restorative framework. So check more uh, information out at restorativejusticeontherise.org. Thank you, everyone, for your participation in this virtual living room and dialogue. See you next time on Restorative Justice on the Rise.